I believe health is the greatest form of wealth we have, which is why I'm proud to be partnered with Brothers in Arms. Brothers in Arms is a wellness brand dedicated to working with veterans, first responders, and anyone on the front line. Through their education, support, and premium CBD products, they help alleviate and restore the lives of those that have been affected by physical and mental trauma. Learn about the life-changing benefits and power of CBD and join their community today. Links can be found on the MCP website and IG page. Hello everyone, welcome to Multiple Calls episode 43, I'm Scott Hewlett. There are some things that are tried and true and stand the test of time. The origin of yoga is traced back at least 5,000 years, and some research shows that it could go back as far as 10,000. Like any teaching, system, or idea, it has seen its share of being misinterpreted, misunderstood, marketed, and misused. Yet it has endured. I'm sure that somewhere out there, there's still someone following their buns of steel on VHS routine or crushing reps on their ab master. But for the rest of us, we've seen more fads and trends come and go than we can remember. Yoga has survived this long because it's not just exercise and it has nothing to do with fashion. Our bodies and minds align with it. You don't have to look like a yoga magazine cover model or be a contortionist to realize very quickly that we are built for it. It doesn't get much simpler than a 3x6 floor space in your own body in your own house. And you don't have to do all of it to get great benefit from some of it. From preventing injuries to recovering from PTSD. I get it. Goat yoga may not be for you. It might not even be for goats. But yoga for first responders is designed for you. It's the perfect balance of what's in and just outside of your comfort zone. It's a non-profit organization that has your heart and mind in their hearts and minds. Here's my chat with founder and CEO, Olivia Mead. Do you want to start by telling me where you grew up and a little bit about your family structure and where you're at now? Tell me a bit about that journey. Yeah, totally. So I grew up in Silicon Valley area in California. I was an only child and I lived with my parents and my grandmother. I went to a Spanish immersion school. And so I was in San Jose, California, and there was it was heavily Hispanic there. So grew up actually fluent in Spanish as well. And I was heavy in the ballet scene. So I was a ballet dancer, green groomed and trained, which is definitely like an athlete training, you know, to be a professional dancer. Mm -hmm. My dad was a professional golfer and I would observe him reading and doing breath work and different kinds of yoga actually for the the mindset aspect of the game of golf. So I kind of started to absorb that. In my ballet training, they also started to use yoga to train us on the physical aspect of the practice. So I started to kind of see yoga around me growing up. Even though I'm an only child, I was never alone. I was always out doing, you know, my training. And then at 14, I went to boarding school across the country in North Carolina by myself. It was an arts high school. And so I went from being an only child to basically having 50 sisters and two bathrooms. Um, so 
that, uh, you know, that definitely really shaped going to boarding school and leaving my home at such a young age was a hugely impactful on who I am today. And what about work when you started first entering the workforce and what you did and how you ended up where you are now? Yeah. So after the boarding school, I went to a school in New York City for musical theater. So I was obviously in the performing arts. And while I was in New York, going to school and starting my career as a performer, which I did have a career, I was in a a touring Broadway show. I worked in Las Vegas. So I, I did have a career as a dancer and an actress and a singer. But I also got certified in yoga. So I was practicing yoga and different circumstances that I can talk about led me to getting trained and certified as an instructor. And that was kind of what I wanted to do if I was not on stage. So in the performing arts, you know, it's gig working, right? You don't have a consistent job, which is an incredible amount of stress. So in between the jobs I had performing, I thought, okay, great, I could be a yoga instructor, and I enjoy it, I'm passionate about it, I get it, and that will fill the gaps between performing gigs. So that sort of was the case. Yoga instructors don't get paid a lot, so it wasn't like this completely great thing to to fall back on, but I really enjoyed the practice. As I got older, I noticed that I started to be more interested in teaching yoga and yoga as a practice itself and was more interested in the layers of yoga than performing. And this actually also has to do with my own identity and self-worth and mindset and all this stuff because the inherent act of or, or job of being a performing artist is relying on other people's opinions of you because you have to audition right? You have to audition. And even though I put in years and years of training, if I'm not the right height or the person doing the audition just doesn't like my face, I don't get the job and I can't make money. You know, it's, it's really not great. And you feel bad about yourself. And I was kind of really, really over it and wanted to sneak out of that profession. And I got the opportunity to sneak out of that profession when opportunities in yoga and teaching yoga started to become more prevalent. And what I mean by that is I was interning at LA Yoga Magazine and I was getting more assignments there. And I had this urge to really offer the yoga training to populations who really needed the authentic practice. And those are service populations, warrior populations, such as military and public safety. And when I started knocking on those doors to offer yoga to this population, turns out they needed it and wanted it. And those opportunities started to really come up that I didn't even have time to audition anymore. And I was totally happy about that. I just decided, okay, this is my new career now is leading this type of training for this population. Being in New York, it's incredibly over the top stimulating. And then being in performing arts too, it's a very stimulating industry. Mm -hmm. So what was the energy like in the community that of your colleagues was there what was the level of self-care happening? Were other people doing yoga? Was it kind of haphazard? Like what was your vibe? 
it's terrible. It's self self care is terrible in that world. And this was back, you know, 20 years ago, mind you too. So maybe things have changed. But in the line of work of performing arts, especially as a dancer, your tool that you're using is your body. So it doesn't mean let me keep my body as healthy as possible. It is let me make sure my body can do what is being asked of it. So how you're eating, how you're training, how you're pushing yourself is just so I can get my leg behind my head so I can do exactly what's being asked of me at at any cost. You, You see dancers and they look physically healthy, right? You see their muscles and they look great. Um, doesn't mean that the insides are reflecting that. The mental aspect too, like I had mentioned, just having to prove your worth in order to put food on the table is just horrendous. It's very competitive. And, you know, I was just talking to a friend that between gigs, if I, let's say I got a job at Starbucks, because listen, Starbucks has is a great working environment. They give you health insurance. They pay for schooling. I mean, it would it's great, right? But since it had nothing to do with the performing arts, I would have felt shame taking a job between gigs that would have actually been good for my life because I'd be too ashamed that I wasn't having a performing gig. It's like a mind fuck to be in the performing arts. And even as an actor, so when I went to school for acting, I went to a very classical acting school. And if you've heard of Stanislavski or method acting, which some people know about, they really ask you to feel the feelings of your character, right? And a character isn't written unless it's going through some shit. So that means that Every day when I'm working on scenes or working on whatever, I'm entering emotions of someone's life that's going through something. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a play. It wouldn't be on screen or on stage. And that really did a number on my mental health. Because, okay, you're going to place a a wife who's abused. You're going to play this or that character. And the emotional roller coaster of actually feeling in your bones these emotions in order to be a good actress is really hell. But I loved it when I was doing it, maybe. I I don't even know. But I got to a certain point in, in my adulthood where I was like, I can't handle this for my mental health anymore. So I really, I really need to do something that's better for me versus what's validation from an audience, validation from you know, people I'm auditioning for, outside validation, I need to look more internal. When you were first exposed to the emergency service community, was it immediately apparent sort of the parallels between that community and the community you were just talking about? Because a lot of it translates. Oh, absolutely. And that self-sacrifice, and I never wanted to compare myself to who I was serving because I have so much respect for military and public safety that I never wanted to sort of outwardly equate them because I was just a performer, right? You know, they're really helping people. And I should say that self-sacrifice and putting yourself last behind other people is definitely similar. And I think that's why I could definitely relate and definitely also say like, hey, I have something that helped me 
and maybe it can help you too. And when you see the statistics in emergency services, you're like, yeah, and I see there's a huge gap that we need to plug in with some proactive training to to help this issue. And even when you were talking about having to dive into the emotions of a character, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's that there's that parallel with emergency services with mirror neurons having knowledge mm-hmm. of that taking on the emotions and energy of the people you're there to help. So it's incredibly interesting to hear you talk about dance and and performing. And I'm seeing the parallels in my world. Well, what's interesting about that too is I went through a fire academy and police academy for the purposes of my work. And I loved it. I loved doing the skills. But I also knew that I could never do the job because of that emotional aspect. I just couldn't dive back in to the secondary traumatic stress, vicarious traumatization. And, you know, my husband's a retired firefighter. And what he said he did is you close the door to those emotions. But the problem is, is then when you need to have an open door of emotions for your family, it's hard to open it because you've closed it for your job. So the floodgates are either open or they're completely closed. And it's really hard to have a balance of both. So really with the performing arts, they're teaching you how to take on and dive in and live in these emotions, but then they don't tell you how to release them afterwards. Exactly. And then with veterans, they go to war and experience, they come back, they're not taught how to release it. And we're taught, well, just shut it off because that's easier than learning how to release it each time. Right. And what we call it is, is processing right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right that even in scenario training, they'll throw you into a scenario so that you get to experience the stress, but then they don't teach you, okay, now here's what you do with that stress. Because you can use stress to your advantage and you can also learn how to process it out so you come back to baseline. And those things are, are not taught. I also think you're not as effective as a first responder if you've shut your emotions off completely. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. actually more effective if you can use them mm-hmm. and be aligned with them and then learn how to process them and do that each time. Like that's where the skill is that makes you most effective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Talk to me about mentors and, and then maybe what led you towards uh, wanting to instruct yoga. Gosh, mentors. Who I was really drawn to, I should say, is authenticity and doing the work versus putting up a facade of doing the work. And this is both in my performing life and in my yoga life. So in the in the Western world of yoga here in the States, there are yoga superstars. Go to Instagram, look in, up yoga, yoga teacher, and you'll see folks with thousands, millions of followers. They're cool, they're hip, they're wearing all the right clothes, right? They can do all the tricks. And they look like what people associate with yoga. And this impresses a lot of people, which is why they get followers. And it also isolates a lot of people, including those military and emergency services, because that can be intimidating, especially for a population who needs to inherently be in charge and know what's going on. So if they feel like they're going to be in a situation where they won't be, they probably won't be drawn towards that. The other issue with that is it with uh, this facade, this Instagram sort of yoga world, is it's distracting from the authentic 
true intentional practice of yoga. So who I was drawn to and kind of and and still see as mentors are the master instructors of yoga that I tripped over that I found haphazardly that don't have this huge following on social media but there are they're teaching the authentic practice and the authentic practice truly is mental conditioning in fact just before I started talking to you I did a 90 minute class with my teacher in India over Zoom. So thank you, technology, and you know, <laughs> this this new pivot we've all had to do. But he was talking about where the yoga postures are treatments for the body. And the yoga philosophy itself is meant mastering the mind and mental conditioning. And this is really difficult to do and requires a lot of discipline, which is why a lot of people would rather follow and look at the cute yoga clothing person than really looking internally and digging deep inside, which is the yoga practice. So I was really keeping my eyes and learning from those instructors and that's how I taught. So I taught the way that I was being taught. And that wasn't very popular in, I taught yoga in Beverly Hills and in New York City, right? And people were more concerned about what playlist I had, who was, what clothing company was endorsing me versus, hey, we need to focus on our breath and condition your breath and your nervous system and your mind. They didn't want that. And I didn't enjoy teaching in gyms and yoga studios that wanted me to focus on the trendy stuff. And so that's what kind of was pushing me toward teaching military and first responders because I knew that that population could use it and would want it. Very similarly, kind of with my performing career too, I was more into the folks that may not be famous but was really doing the craft and really would make you feel something if you saw them on stage. Again, that's also the same reason I had to leave the profession because when you do that, it does a number on you. But I think I've always been drawn towards authenticity and truly doing the work. Firefighters and emergency responders always want to think that they're very unique as people. But the more I talk to people and about their industries, listening to you talk about it in the performing arts, the facades, and then the yoga industry, the facade and the real, that exists in the emergency services too. It, it seems to be it's not an industry thing. It's an, not a uniqueness that comes with the industry thing. It's just a people thing. Yeah, it's a human condition. And I say something similarly to what you just said, is just because someone is wired to be a cop or a firefighter or go into that profession, does not mean that their brain or nervous system is different than any other human. So they're seeing more trauma, more loss, more death, more destruction in one day than the average civilian will see in their entire lifetime. Yet they're not being given the tools for their nervous system and brain to handle that. As if when you go and graduate from the academy, all of a sudden you get this nervous system of steel or something. We have to remember not only civilians in the community, but the the first responders themselves need to remember their humanness. And there's very much a front of, I'm tough. I fight what you fear. I run mm-hmm. towards things when everyone's running away. 
this mm-hmm. this sense of not being afraid of anything. But there right. really is a sense of fear of their own emotions, of the unknown that comes with emotions. And they would rather white knuckle it than maybe be brave and try something that's going to benefit them. Right. Or train for the fear, train for the humanness. It's it's not being tough and brave doesn't mean just going for it. In fact, I would say that's actually being irresponsible. You have to train, just like you train your body and your skills, you have to train your brain and nervous system for what you're about to see. I do think it's brave and incredible for someone to run toward danger instead of away, but I would truly hope that person has done some training neurologically to be able to do that, Mm -hmm. not just skills and not just physical. But again, it's just being a people thing. We see a lot of bystanders with no training whatsoever that react in the similar way. So perhaps it's more personality traits than a chosen thing or something that that happens to you when you choose to become an emergency service provider. Oh, definitely. I was doing some simulation, some shoot, no shoot stuff with a police department, just private training, and they film you and how you're reacting to these scenarios. And you're in a 360 degree video room. So it's very, it looks very real and it's based on real scenarios and they show you the film later. Now, I could have sworn that after I had drawn my weapon, I was walking toward the incident, towards the person. The video showed me backing up. Hmm. So what's incredible about that is, and like I said, I love the skills I learned in the academy, but I know that it's not my personality to do it. And it's not because, listen, if, if I were the only one on a sidewalk and someone needed help, I wouldn't run away. I love people and I would love to help. But I do, I agree with you that there's something in the personality that makes someone back off or go towards it. And that's great. Thank God those people are out there. Now we just have to make sure we give them all the tools possible so they don't self-sacrifice in the meantime. Do you find that there's a fear of yoga or what it means or what is going to do to them if they start doing it? Oh, totally. 100%. And so I have to tell you that 90% of my job is convincing people. And I don't, that word convincing is mm-hmm. wrong. It's like educating, mm-hmm. right? Inspiring Re-ed- people. Yeah. Well, and re-educating on what yoga is and isn't. Because of that trendiness and what they see, like if you Google the word yoga, you are not going to find a copper firefighter at the top of Google doing yoga, right? <laughs> And so what the fear seems to be, a couple things, there are three primary things I see, is the fear is that they're not going to be able to do it and look stupid and probably lose credibility among their peers or themselves or whatever, that it's a waste of time because it serves no purpose. They'll appear weak because they're doing something that appears to be sort of a soft, maybe feminine, easy practice. Oh, another thing is some people equate it with religion. It's absolutely not a religion. There is no God that anyone is asking you to praise or anything like that. All of those things are what is being displayed out there. So I don't blame anyone for having these misconceptions because that's sort of the westernized branding of yoga. So we have to re-educate on what yoga training is and what it can do for them as people and in their profession. There are so many dots you can connect, as, as you already have, as just seeing how 
everything us as humans experiencing in life is experienced in emergency services. But what yoga can support is directly applicable to first responders. So I'll give you an example. The foundation of yoga is breath work, is monitoring your breath, watching your breath, manipulating your breath. That's that's how we enter into the nervous system in order to, to train the nervous system and, and create autonomic fitness. And what we've noticed, and this has also been proven in different studies, but we have the anecdotal evidence as well, is as you start to train the breath, you start to increase your CO2 tolerance. The more CO2 you have in your body, then when the O2 comes in, the oxygen gets straight, delivered straight away to the cells. With less CO2 in the body, you're going to bring in a lot of O2 into your body, but very little's actually going to make it to the cells and to the tissues. So then what happens is your body's like, oh, shit, I need more oxygen. So you take a giant breath in, but it doesn't get where it needs to go. So you take another giant breath in, and all of a sudden you're hyperventilating, you're sucking all the air out of your bottle, and you're done. When you have a higher amount of CO2 and a little bit of oxygen goes a long way, you can preserve the air in your bottle. So this is just a direct connection and how the primary training tool of yoga, the breath, is directly helping a job skill. And these are things that I learned by going through the academy myself. I was excelling at for no other reason than having practiced yoga for so many years. I was able to use my dexterity better. I was able to have better situational awareness. I always was the last one to tap out on my bottle because of all of this previous training I had done. So not only is yoga helping with the self-regulation of the nervous system because of the huge amount of stress and trauma in, in emergency services, it's also supporting the enhancement of performance and job skills. Which is probably the best avenue to draw people in initially is for increase in performance. Exactly, exactly. That's the sexiest part. <laughs> for sure. And then they get to learn that cycle of which some of them are probably already aware of, hopefully, as if they've been athletic at all prior to getting on the job with a lower breath rate is a lower heart rate and which is yeah. increases your ability to think, like you mentioned, with situational awareness. And, and it's a positive cycle as opposed to a negative cycle. You know how you had mentioned about it's similar in emergency services. There's the authentic people actually doing the work versus the people just putting on the facade. I've noticed that the people who resonate with what I'm saying are the folks that are really doing the work. And those that not only don't want to do it, but even are rude to me. And believe me, I've had even leadership. I have had a captain be outright cruel to me in front of people. But do you know why? It's because they're afraid. They're afraid they'll be exposed. Because if I give them an actual training tool to work on their breath, their nervous system, their brain, their minds, you know, all of this stuff, they'll be exposed as only being a facade. And I can tell immediately when I have people on a yoga mat, I can tell immediately what kind of person they are and what kind of firefighter they are by how they practice yoga. Are there other activities that you incorporate into your self-care? 
as well as yoga? Yeah, yoga is simply a practice of awareness, observing yourself and trying to evolve and enhance yourself. So what was created that we know as yoga was, okay, breath work, these physical postures, meditation, and this was invented 5,000 years ago as a vehicle to practice yoga. And so then it became known as yoga. But actually the word yoga and the practice of yoga is simply a self-observation. So that means that if you are observing yourself and you are completely in the present moment, mentally, physically, and neurologically, it doesn't matter if you're washing your dishes or you're riding a bike or you're journaling, you are practicing yoga. I, I do a practice of self-awareness. It's from a, a manifesting course, but it's not like, okay, I want to manifest a new car, this or that. This whole practice of self-awareness is to notice patterns, mental beliefs and patterns you picked up in childhood, and to recreate new neural pathways of self-worth. Because when your self-worth is heightened, then the life you want comes to you. That's the theory. So it's a lot of meditation, a lot of journaling, a lot of self-reflection, And even though that is not doing a sun salutation, it's a method of practicing yoga because it's self-awareness. So I do that. I also am big into Peloton. I love my cycling. But when I'm on the Peloton and cycling, I'm completely present. I'm nowhere else. And that's mindfulness. So that's a practice of mindfulness. My husband's an outdoor cyclist, and he says the same thing. And in fact... He and his crew started a cycling club at their fire department. And that was, when I told him, I was like, listen, that's doing yoga. That was your guys' way of processing stress and being present. So that was your way of practicing mindfulness. So I also make sure I have a morning routine. And my morning routine is slow. I know for some people it's very like... I shoot a shot of espresso and then I take a five minute shower and do my gratitude list. But for me, I like to have a little bit of a slower morning. I sip my coffee. I take a longer shower. I think about my day and I kind of call that paying myself first. So instead of waking up and immediately doing what others are asking for me, I ask myself what I need first. And then that allows me to serve others better And it doesn't matter what that is, as long as it's something that supports me. You mentioned in your write-up to me that you didn't actually choose to become an instructor. So tell me about how that happened in a sort of happenstance way. Yeah. So I didn't say, okay, I'm going to be a yoga instructor. That's the whole point here. But when I was going to school and living in New York City, every morning I would get up and practice Ashtanga yoga at the gym. And Ashtanga yoga is a set series. So you do the exact same postures every single time. So after a few weeks, you know what's coming next. And one day there was a mix up with the teacher or the sub or whatever, but we did not have a teacher. And so I said, well, I can, I know what poses come next. So I can, I can just stand up here and tell you what poses come next. And they're like, okay, cool. So I started doing that. So I stood in front of the class and I started saying, okay, now this posture, now this posture, But as I was observing them, I noticed that I had a few tips, a few cues, a few coaching tips that I could give them. That's being a teacher is 
supporting people. So this is another sort of beef I have with yoga in the West is a lot of people just stand there and bark out poses. You have to give tips and tricks and support so your students evolve. And the only way you're going to have those tips and tricks to coach people is if you are practicing yourself enough to be able to be your own teacher and coach yourself. That's only how you're going to be able to train others is if you continue to remain a student. So being up there, I turned into an instructor because I was coaching. I was helping and I was like, oh my God, I I have something to offer. And I didn't even realize that because when I was practicing as a student with these people around me, I wasn't looking at them. So I didn't realize, oh, you have no idea where to put your knee in this position. You have no idea you're holding your breath and your shoulders are up in that position. But now that I'm looking at them, I can give them those coaching cues, which then allows them to evolve their practice. So I sort of just became this instructor, but if I wanted to do it for real, I had to go get certified. So got certified and just continued to learn myself and give coaching tips to others. And that's what I'm still doing. It's been 19 years. I can't believe that. Amazing. I sound like I'm really old. I'm not even 40 yet, everyone. Okay, just so you know. <laughs> but like, I've been teaching for 19 years and that's all I'm doing. All I'm doing is telling you what I've learned myself. It really, we've touched on it here and there along our talk so far, but it really is a avenue or medium for self-discovery. Yep. And learning how to meet yourself where you're at and then taking small consistent steps along the way. Then there really is no end to it. It's the idea of having a growth mindset. I mean, all these things come to mind when I think about how I've incorporated yoga into my life. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. It's not, even though it has similarities to martial arts, but it is not a belt system where you accomplish something and you keep moving upward. Every day, you know, yoga is more about capacity versus capability. So what is your capacity today? And what, as my teacher says, what treatment do you need? What do you need to give yourself to work on that day? And that requires, yeah, that self-reflection and self-awareness. And I think that's why this is a training tool that is only for certain people who are willing to look inward. I mean, that's scary. And like I said to you before, the people that are running away from it, they can give any excuse in the book, but the reality is they're afraid of the self-reflection. Even if they wanted to ignore completely, at least initially, all Mm -hmm. of the personal internal benefits that can come from it, Mm -hmm. even if you approached it from strictly a physical standpoint, Mm-hmm. People are fans of chiropractors, but I feel like I use the analogy of when you start going to the chiropractor and you're set, quote unquote, straight, now you've got mm-hmm. this baseline for what your body feels like when it's not crooked and bent out of position. Then you start to recognize when it is out of position quicker and then you you end up making oh, an yeah. appointment going in and getting set right and you feel better. Oh yeah, that's, that's a, great, a great comparison. The physical aspect of yoga can be the gateway drug because you start doing it and all of a sudden you become aware of, you know, you notice like the day you don't do yoga, you notice. Right. Even for, I had a couple nagging issues, all first responders do. And I've noticed when I do yoga every other day, those issues are gone. They don't exist. 
And then I'd, I started to think, well, they're fixed. They'll never have them again. And yoga tapered off a little bit and they came back. So really it's, that's the thing that's keeping that from becoming a bigger problem is, is doing yep. that practice. And I've heard that same thing several times from other people. It's absolutely true. And people I think are very afraid of that. It has to be incredibly intense. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's quite a few basic yoga poses that have great benefit that you don't even have yeah. to go farther down the road into anything else. If you don't want to, you could build a toolkit of things that work for you and just stick with those and repeat. Oh, Absolutely. So I, I'm going to, I'm paraphrasing here, but I heard this story from Greg Amundsen, who's in the CrossFit world. And he was telling a story about a master and I don't know what type of martial art it was, but he was this old guy been practicing for years. And he said, only now am I truly understanding what's behind a forearm block, the simplest movement, right? It's taken him years to break that down. And I tell everyone, all you need is a sun salutation. You could work on the awareness of a sun salutation for the rest of your life. And I build curriculum for the Air National Guard. And one of our instructors said, okay, we, we went through all of the classes. What do I do now? I said, if people start again, is it like they're going backwards? And I'm like, you could teach those seven classes for the rest of your life and still barely scratch the surface of what's possible. So it really is more about drilling down than it is about excelling, whatever that means mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. Over all the years you've been doing yoga, and I say this because I, I, I'm just, I have this experience, so I don't know if, you, if it's unique or someone's having a similar experience. Are there poses that you've always not liked or that you're, when you go, when it comes up in the prompt, it's like you have this groan moment, right? Like your body, your mind just doesn't like it. And then I also want to add to the question, are there poses that you get into that you feel for you always create a release mm -hmm. on physical, but not, but also emotional? Like there's, so for me, it's half pigeon, right? I get into half pigeon, one or the other, and there's something about maybe there's stress that's been being held in that area or in those areas. And it can be an incredibly emotional experience. And I noticed it then that maybe it's also followed on a week where there's been a lot of stress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, you're absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned pigeon because I was teaching, I was part of this training that mimicked a 24 hour shift. And so they had several different areas for training, stations for trainings throughout 24 hours. And so I basically taught 12 yoga classes in 24 hours, ranging from five minutes to 45 minutes. It was very interesting. But when one of the sessions in the middle of the night, everyone was in their bunker gear and I had them doing half pigeon and someone really said all their sort of demons started to come up not a trigger, but that's stress processing because a lot of stress and trauma are held in the hips. So when you do hip openers, such as pigeon pose, those things start to come up. Now, here's the thing. You don't just get out of the pose and mm -hmm. say that. Mm -hmm. No, that's when you breathe. That's when you sink in. You know, Yes, exactly. You, you drill down more because that's the processing of the stress that's going to allow you, as you mentioned earlier, be a better firefighter later because you're not dragging that weight with you. You've processed it out. So it's funny you mentioned that particular pose. And yes, for me personally, my whole life, there have been postures that I dread and others I sink into. 
And I really have to ask myself, okay, what is the resistance to these poses and why? Because typically I'm someone that if I'm resistant to something, I go toward it because there's something there to learn. Anything having to do with going upside down for me. So uh, headstand, handstand, there's a lot of fear around there. The first time I ever did a handstand in yoga class was after I quit a toxic job that I had. And my legs just boop, went right up. And so it really showed me how much emotional and fear and all this stuff was keeping me from doing something scary. So there was that. Half moon always just annoys me. But then the postures that I really get into actually are the hip openers, the inner and outer hips. And I think that's because I just really invite in that processing of the memories that are stored in the hip. I'm into that stuff, you know, in my regular life. And I do in my regular life have had fear and had anxiety around doing things differently in life. And that kind of also mimics why I hate going upside down, you know, in handstands. So I always say that yoga is simply life training. And so everything going on in life is mirrored on the yoga mat. But on the yoga mat, you can actually investigate it and work on it and give it attention. In life, you kind of have to just keep paying your bills and moving forward. Not that you can't be observant in life, but we have we have to function and do things. But the yoga mat is a place where those things are mirrored and you can really use it as a place to like a laboratory and really notice what's going on and make some changes. I've come to find from those poses that come up, there's a voice somewhere inside of me that doesn't like it or doesn't want to do it. I've come to realize that I don't always agree with what I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> well, it's, true. it's funny you say it because you just mentioned like one of the main philosophies of yoga, which is we are of two minds. There's you that is the think thinking and saying, I don't like this. I'm not going to do whatever. And then there's the higher consciousness you that is watching those thoughts and might, yeah, disagree with it. Because chair pose comes up and it's (sighs) right. And it's not that I'm bad at it or it's not that it even really hurts that bad. I mean, mean, your legs are going to strengthen. Eventually it becomes more doable, but see, it's really not that awful a pose, but every time it comes up, there's that part of me that I'm observing and I'm, and I'm thinking, what's what's your deal? What's your problem? <laughs> and then you have the conversation with that party. This isn't that bad. Are your legs actually hurting right now? Are you really challenged? Is this really that hard? And then by the time you're doing that, it's over. And you're like, see, that wasn't that tough. So you, you learn to dialogue with yourself a little bit. Well, better. that's the thing. That dialogue is the yoga, not the chair pose. The chair pose is the vehicle for that dialogue to happen. So being observing that dialogue and being able to notice the conversation. That's the yoga. I don't give a shit about the chair pose, but the chair pose has to happen so that dialogue can happen. Right, right. And, you know, and then in the meantime, are you gaining strength and mobility? Sure. Is that beneficial? Absolutely. But that's sort of this cherry on top. When I'm teaching our instructor schools, which is our our 60 hour intensive training to be certified in our specific protocol, Our protocol for yoga for first responders is traditional yoga that's just job specific and culturally informed for public safety. So it's it's tailored to those needs. So in our intensive training, I get people to sweat 
and I get people to probably not like me in those moments because I give them some challenging postures. But I keep telling them, observe, 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 observe your thoughts, observe your breath, observe what your body is doing. Are you shrinking? What's the first thing you compromise when you're uncomfortable? Notice all that stuff because later it may not be the chair pose, but it's going to be a community member on the street yelling in your face or your captain saying this or that. So if you've already done the work on being able to create more space between stimulus and response on the yoga mat, then you'll be able to do it in real life. It's really bottomless. Even when you're in a pose and all of a sudden that day it's more comfortable and it seems to be like you don't really think about it when you get into that pose anymore. All you have to do is shift yourself an inch and all of a sudden it's just as hard as it was the first day you learned it yeah, because you realize you've been coasting and you haven't been then yes. you know stretching to that next place again. Right. We call that the 4%. You have to be, the challenge has to be 4% out of your skill or ability in order to stay mindful. Because I tell people all the time, listen, who in here has done a lot of yoga? People raise their hand. I was like, all of us are most likely not practicing yoga mindfully. Because we've done it so much, we know what move is next, and we are putting in our coffee order right now, you know, for later. It's the beginner's mind that is completely present and mindful. So that's why we always have to be a beginner when we come to the yoga mat and keep that challenge 4% out of our reach. But would you say that sometimes going and coasting through it, is there's also a benefit to that as long as that's not your, your standard? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a benefit to everything as long as you're aware. There is sometimes that I'm like, okay, this is going to be a step and repeat for me today. But guess what? I'm moving my body and I'm moving my breath. And that, and well, and here's the thing by 4% challenge, I don't necessarily mean always physically, right? So maybe you're coasting physically that day for whatever reason, but the 4% challenge was to get your ass out of bed and get to the yoga mat. It's, it doesn't, breaking a sweat or not is not what I'm talking about. It's more of having that observation of whatever's happening that day. If you are observing, you're practicing yoga. Especially with, say, dancer's pose, right? Where there a lot of balance is required. I find if you're very tired from shift or mm-hmm. you know, your body's just beat down, your, your balance is off or you're, yeah. or you're, sleep, you're sleep deprived. Even yeah. just attempting it. But, I, you know, I try... I'm better at it now. Like you don't beat yourself up if you can't do it the way you were doing it the last week. It doesn't matter. It's how you're able to do it today. Right. Well, yeah, absolutely. So that's observing. And also we really encourage scalability based on your capacity. Again, not capability. If you're really tired from shift that you're having a really hard time in dancer's pose that you need to put your hand on the wall. That doesn't mean you cannot do, you don't have the capability of doing dancer pose. You definitely do. You did it yesterday. But your capacity today is, your 4% today is, I need to work on the mechanics of this pose because I'm so tired that if I just try to push my leg back, I'm not doing anything. But if I just work on hip placement, make sure my knees are together, pushing my my foot into my hand, keeping my chest open. Your leg does not have to be up behind you. It can st- the heel could be touching the butt, but you're working on your mechanics and that is your yoga for that day. 
and is much better than just abandoning it altogether because, well, I'll do it when I'm rested. Well, absolutely. And here's how it mirrors too, is are you going to be, okay, let's say a structure fire comes in on your last hour of shift. Are you tired? Yeah, you're going to be tired. And so you don't just throw yourself into it. Maybe because you're tired, you know, you have to really be specific about the mechanics of what you're doing. So you don't make a mistake. If you mirrored that in how you practice yoga when you're tired, your brain is already trained to focus on the small details and mechanics when you're tired, and it'll be mirrored on the fire ground. And that's, again, meeting yourself where you're at on that day. And yeah. I think people confuse grinding and having grit with being hardcore with, well, no matter what happened last shift, I'm going to get in the gym. I'm going to try and crush a PR with my squats and my bench press. Right. And that's what warriors do. Right. It's well, that's what injured warriors do. Right. <laughs> well, sometimes it's like, well, the, today's a yoga day, right? Because yeah. I, I don't, I plan on doing squats today. If I do that, it's probably not going to go very well. Today's a yoga day. And this workout I usually do is challenging, but not super easy. I think that's what I can accomplish. Then you do that. Yeah. And Mark Devine, who does Seal Fit, he says, a warrior must be skilled in action and non action. So if you only are training yourself to bust through it, even when you're tired, you're not necessarily making yourself stronger. You have to be able to have both sides. And speaking of squats, let's say that, okay, I'm, I am not in a place to try to get a PR on my squats today. Here's what you can do. If you work on yoga, yoga squats, what you're and breathing while holding a yoga squat while engaging the pelvic floor, and lifting up, making sure your knees are tracked over your toes. What you're doing is strengthening the small muscles around the feet and the joints. That's what's going to keep you from getting injured when you do bust out those CrossFit squats. So the small muscles that are getting strengthened in yoga are there to support the big muscles when you are lifting heavy. So it will benefit if you're really into CrossFit and lifting heavy things, practicing yoga is actually going to help you do that. So it's, it's not a waste of a gym day to focus on your yoga. And all of our work is not walking up to something that's set and it's a set range of motion. Everything's off balance. Everything's oh, not, not uniform. So yeah, yoga has allowed me to be actually the strongest I've been and the most functionally fit. I love that. I love that. Like I had a firefighter explain to me that how, where he really realized how the yoga movements was helping him is how many times he's had to figure out how to get someone out from like behind a toilet. You know? <laughs> and he was like, wow, I am literally making like a warrior two position now or a lunge twist position. And thank God I have worked on how to breathe and be in this position safely because it was easy for, and that's what I was, what I meant too, when I went in the Academy and I was excelling at certain things, it's because I had body movement and functional mobility that other people didn't, even though they were gym rats. So we, we, yeah, you have to really move and train on all planes. I think it's more of a wake up call when I instruct firefighters on skills that how limited their mobility is, how limited their, you know, stabilizer muscles are strength wise, yeah. how limited their movements are and how they need to work on that in order to do the skill we're working on. Yeah. Yeah. It's very strange. You pointed out, it's really obvious. And 
I don't know why there is for most a, a roadblock to still do that. It's changing, but I still see people more apt to lift heavy than work on processing the stress out of the connective tissue, which is keeping them from experiencing functional mobility. So tell me fully the story about yoga for first responders, how it got started and where you're at today. Yeah. So when I was living in Los Angeles and not enjoying teaching at that Beverly Hills studio and feeling this desire to really teach the authentic practice of yoga to a population who would probably want it and also needed it, I got certified to teach yoga to military and veterans who were struggling with post-traumatic stress. So that's kind of where I started going off the beaten path of yoga in the West. I was teaching in VAs. I was teaching active military. And my mother actually brought it to my attention. She said, why aren't you teaching public safety? They're out in the fight every single day. And the trap that I fell into that I think most of us do, most of the public does, is that we assume first responders are going to always be there for us because they will. We'll call 911 and they will they will be there no matter if we treat them poorly or not, they're going to be there. And we don't even think about it. And I wasn't thinking about it either. And it just sort of hit me over the head like, oh my God. And when I was looking, over, looking at statistics, the statistics were, you know, there was so much... Um, advertisement of the statistics of stress-based health issues in military. But when I looked it up, public safety had the exact same issues. So I was like, oh God, this needs to happen. So I want to get trained in how to culturally teach yoga to first responders. That's something that everyone needs to understand, I think, in teaching yoga and probably teaching anything. But I know yoga. So teaching yoga to any population, you do need to be culturally competent in who you're teaching. I can't go teach yoga to refugees right now because I don't know their story. I can't teach yoga to cancer patients right now. I don't know their story, their culture. I'd have to definitely get educated on that. So I Googled yoga for first responders. So in order for me to find a certification program to get educated. Well, there was nothing out there. There's tons of training for military to teach yoga to military and veterans. Absolutely none for first responders. So I was like, well, looks like I have to build this myself. So I wrote an email to Los Angeles Fire Department. I guess it was passed to the right person, the department psychologist, and he knew the value of yoga, so he did get back to me and he was interested, but his biggest concern was the the buy-in and trying to get this kind of a practice to an alpha male population. And I assured him that with my disciplined training, the way I taught, even before I taught first responders, was pretty militant, which not everyone loved, but I guess I should say more direct, right? Not floofy. So I, with that, plus my experience teaching veterans, give me a, give me a try. So he took me around. I spoke to a lot of commanders, convinced them, re-educated them on what yoga was about. They gave me a try. I was teaching twice a week at the training center. And as I was teaching, I first approached it with how I was teaching yoga to veterans and military and kind of quickly realized, okay, this isn't quite the right fit even though they're part of the warrior population, it's different. And even within public safety, each subsect, each different population, dispatchers, firefighters, cops, they also have their own unique culture. 
So I really had to learn more about that culture. And what I realized is the more I learned about it, the more I needed to make the yoga go back to its traditional roots, right? The more the authentic practice really aligned with what first responders resonated with, which was great news for me. So I went on ride-alongs. I I talked to a lot of people. Again, I was invited to participate in academies when I was teaching in the academy. And and I said yes to that, which was a, a great experience. Then after that, I did citizens academies to kind of keep my skills up. And that started to create what we now, what we now call the YFFR protocol, our training protocol, which is traditional yoga rooted mainly in Hatha yoga that is job specific and culturally informed for public safety. And it started working. The buy-in was there. People were feeling the benefits. So I started to get phone calls, LAPD, people around the country. I started traveling to big trade uh, conferences to present in front of people. So I started to create presentation material with a, you know, like a slide deck with a clicker and everything instead of just like on a yoga mat. In fact, mostly what I do is talks and presentations versus the yoga itself, actually. And then people, first responders, departments, and yoga teachers wanted to learn the protocol I had created. So I created a curriculum for an instructor school that certifies civilian yoga instructors or first responders with no yoga experience on our approach. And now I think I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I think last year it was about 25,000 first responders and military have received yoga for first responder protocol curriculum and training. We have 150 teachers around the country, Canada, Australia, the Netherlands that are delivering our curriculum and our training protocol. And we're starting a research study that we'll be launching in a couple weeks. We also have online training now, like everyone does, but our online, our six week online training went through a pilot study And everyone who completed all six weeks had significant decrease in stress symptoms. And that led to a fully funded in-person training that's starting in a couple weeks. So it basically started from me being pissed off at the Western yoga world for not teaching the authentic practice to now having a, a nationwide training protocol for first responders and military. How have the interactions with others through all this work affected you personally? Yeah, gosh, that's interesting because it's, it's, has gone, there's been two, two major impactful events or feelings. I mean, I've had people literally say this saved my life. This changed my life where you just feel, I I, I don't want to say that I feel proud of myself. It's more of, oh my God, change is happening. And that's what I wanted. And I'm so glad to hear this and thank God. And this is really hard work, but I, I, I'm motivated to wake up and do it again tomorrow because it's, people are getting impacted. So it just feels great. And it's motivating because this work is hard. You know, I think a lot of people think I just float around on a cloud and go teach yoga. 95% of what I do is running the nonprofit organization and getting funding and getting helping departments find it in their budget and convincing people to get on the yoga mat. And it's a lot of work that sometimes you're like, is this worth it? And then we get back evaluations from the U.S. Marshal Service that 100% said this was the most valuable training they've ever had. And you're like, oh, 
oh my God, I guess it is happening. And I guess I do have to keep doing this and you want to, right? Listen, yoga is intense, not just physically. It's an intense inner reflection look work on yourself. Some people are ready for it. And those who are not ready for it will fight you as if they're an animal in the wild and their survival is at stake because they so desperately don't want to be held accountable. This is all subconscious. And I have to remind myself of this, but I have had a couple people really be unkind to me to the point where I was like, why am I doing this? And I have to remember, okay, this is, I can probably give you three examples, three or four examples tops in the last years, years that I've been doing this. So it's not a lot, it's not prevalent, but it was enough that hurt me because I don't make a lot of money doing this. I'm, it takes a lot of work. I'm doing this because I, I want to be of service to those who serve, right? I could, I, sh- I could have gotten a job on Wall Street and had a yacht by now, maybe, but like I'm not. And so it would really hurt me when folks would be so incredibly unkind about something I'm trying to give. And I had to do a lot of speaking of self-awareness. I had to go back to my own yoga and I had to be self-reflective of why, why did this hurt me so badly and realize, okay, this person's just not in a place for it and that's okay. Let them be there and focus on those who are ready for it. So this is not sunshine and rainbows trying to shift a culture and trying to get people to look at themselves, which is why we're still one of the, if not the only organization of our caliber and level doing this work, because it's easier not to do it, to be honest with you. But if we're going to make a change that's so desperately needed, then we have to, we have to keep moving forward. Yeah. The saying that I love that comes to mind is just because I carry it well, doesn't mean it's not heavy. Right. And if no one has told you yet what you've experienced in those times, is it because you're an outsider? It's also not because it's yoga. That happens. I've had that experience numerous times being on the inside and teaching actual firefighting tactics and skills. It really is with the person and their resistance to anything Mm -hmm. that they perceive as a threat as you eloquently worded it. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate hearing that because it's easy to take things personal, right? And that's part of the self-reflection and the awareness is that nothing is ever personal. I was just speaking to one of my colleagues last night actually on shift about that he's looking into doing some instructing work. So we were talking about mindset of an of an instructor. And we did touch on this about taking things personally. And I tried to offer that perspective from over the years of having to have having had the similar journey of your job is more just to remove the excuse of ignorance yes that's your job so you've done that you can wipe your hands and walk away and whatever anybody does with it or however they come to it that's on them now Mm -hmm. but you've done you've done your job and what they're experiencing from what you're offering has nothing to do with you personally. <laughs> oh, that's exactly it. That's I love that. That's exactly it. And I've only recently come to discover that in my journey as an instructor is it is not my job to uh, th- their their reaction, their response, what they do with it 
is not, has nothing to do with me and it's not my responsibility. And so now I really focus on making sure what I deliver is clear and is applicable. And that's the only thing I have control over. When you're interacting with emergency services, are you mostly going through peer support teams? Are you aware of that? Or are you interacting with their mental health teams, wellness teams? How, who are you in direct contact usually with? And what's your awareness of peer support in that world? Yeah, all of the above, I would say. My husband was on the peer support team. I'm very aware of peer support because often we are batted over to the peer support person or peer fitness trainer. We f- we can fit into a lot of categories, wellness, peer support, physical PT stuff. What I've found when it comes to in-services, we're typically under the umbrella of wellness or peer support. But when it comes to training, we're in academies sort of put under maybe the PT umbrella. Even though we're doing more than PT, as we just have been talking about, it's just the best block of time to put us under. I enjoy more being put under the proactive training. And if that means we have to be in the PT block, that's fine. Versus peer support or wellness. And here's why. I really want us to be a proactive training tool so no one has to make use of peer support. I don't want us to have to be a reactive model like, okay, now you're bound up. It's time to go to yoga. I also want to not be attached to any stigma someone might have about wellness or EAP or something like that. And and nothing's wrong with those things. I'm happy when they invite us in. But I really want us to be more of a skill. So you learn knots, you learn ladders, you learn roof ops, you learn your proactive resilience training through YFFR. I want it to be this proactive skill that you just expect to experience in the academy like everything else. And in service, you get your in service for, you know, your EMT, whatever. And you also get your in service for yoga. You get CEUs for that. That's where I want us to be because I think that's going to be more easily adoptable for people than trying to associate it with peer support and wellness that despite their best efforts is probably still, um, how do I say it? It's still not, it's not sexy. So it's not something people are going to be like, yeah, that's in my locker. That's in my tool belt. So I, I just want to make, I, I want to try to change the the flavor of yoga to be more of a skill. Yeah. And my work with peer support over the years, it was very common for myself and the team to, to say that our job is basically to teach ourselves out of a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> if we, if we can get everybody being peer support for each other and being peer support or being supportive of themselves, basically it in a sense eliminates the need for a specific peer support team. Right. That's um, the hope. That's right. yeah, that's the eventual, yeah, that's the utopic vision down the road. But exactly. Um, it, it exactly. definitely is more proactive than reactive, but right. definitely both are necessary. So how would you recommend any first responder start to add yoga into their life? Yeah, it's 
can be so short, easy, and simple. You do not need a yoga mat. You don't need yoga pants. You, I mean, wear pants if you want. <laughs> you don't need or yoga. not, it's your house. <laughs> yeah, if you're by yourself, do whatever you want. Right. But you don't need special clothing. You don't need a yoga mat. You don't need even a lot of time. I have a, a software that shows biomarkers and you can make neurological change with three minutes, three minutes of yoga. So don't think I don't have 60 minutes in a yoga mat by myself to be able to do yoga. So you can start very, very simply. What I've tried to do is create a real easy gateway into it. So the app that we have, which is called Cyber Academy, you can get it through yogaforfirstresponders.org or on the app store. There's a button that says start here. And in that start here category are all these free videos that are short easy. There's a a 20 minute daily practice. And like we mentioned earlier, if you just do that for the rest of your life, you're fine. You know, you don't need to go beyond that. But there's a foundational breathwork technique. There's the yoga practice. There's what we call neuro reset, which is basically meditation. So you only need what's in that little start here category. And for me, that was my way of inviting people in. From there, if you want more, and you like our method of yoga for first responders online, we're about to launch in March our online course platforms. You can take that six week course that I mentioned that was under the pilot study. You can subscribe to the full online library, which is over a hundred videos. In fact, I want to give you a, a discount code. So it's $4 a month and we can decide what that discount code is and you can put it in show notes or, or whatever. Sure, later. Absolutely. But we're a nonprofit organization. So those that $4, which is less than a cup of coffee, goes right back into our funding for our program. So you can feel good about that and you get the full thing. And we also have in-person teachers. So if you're interested in having an in-person instructor come into your department, you can email programs at yogaforfirstresponders.org. It's all spelled out and we can help hook that up. Now, if you like what you see with Cyber Academy, but you're like, you know what? I want to try a friendly neighborhood yoga studio. Totally do it. Go to the gym, try your yoga studio and support it and love it. Just know that what we do is going to be a little bit different than what you'll most likely and probably find in a studio, right? We don't play music. We don't light incense, anything like that. So just know that that is might be what you encounter. And I don't want anyone to do that. I don't want someone to hear everything I'm saying, go to a yoga studio and be like, Whoa, this is not what Olivia said it would be at all. You know? (laughs) So it's not that I don't want you to go to the yoga studio. I just want people to know that it's different. So if you want to keep going with us, like I said, plenty of ways to do that online or in person, or you can start with cyber Academy to dip your toe in and then maybe go to a, a neighborhood yoga studio. If you'd like to try that out. I've been to yoga studios, you know, through the years, but 95% of all the yoga I've ever done is at home on an app in my garage or my basement. <laughs> so right, right. It's not super glamorous. It's, it's just, you know. Oh, me too. I, my yoga room's in a closet. Right. I literally have a <laughs> closet. I have yoga studios around town here, but I don't feel the need to go because there's so much great content and so many great instructors online live or on apps. And I like to, to make it more accessible. So when I feel like doing it, I can pull up the app and do it versus needing to find what time the class starts. 
and it seems obvious, but I think it's worth saying is that especially during this time where gyms aren't available, this is body weight work. It can be as hard as you want it to be. And if you think yoga is super easy, all of it is super easy, you're dead wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> you're going to notice that you're weak in a lot of ways and it can strengthen you. So and if you think you can't get a workout without weights, you're also dead wrong. Exactly. My favorite thing is when there's like a big dude in my class who clearly lifts heavy, I'll work in, in the middle in front of everyone. I'll work on his specific positioning in a low plank or whatever that asks you to use your small muscles instead of your big muscles. And they are shaking and sweating and like laughing because they're like, oh my God, I can't believe this. I thought I was like this strong person, you know, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with, with working on those small muscles that are really what's going to save you. Yeah. That static tree pose or even a warrior two, or even downward dog people struggle and then chaturanga people do a lot of pushups, but try and stay in, in that, that low plank for longer than 30 seconds. Good luck. Right. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. That's when I told you that I like to give people a gritty class just to kind of have them observe. I keep them in the chaturanga for a while, <laughs> having them breathe and having them put their knees down when they need to or whatever, but, but saying like, listen, folks, like this is now, now watch your thoughts, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and now see how your body feels the next day too, right? Like it's going to let you and know you've you got to work it. out. Yeah. Like you're going to feel it in the muscles under your shoulder blades. Right. Which is you where know? the real strength lives. Exactly. Like if you, like if I, I do um, baby cobra crunches, I called it just like you were doing ab crunches, but on your belly and your hands are, you know, where they are in baby cobra, which is by your lowest rib, but you're not pressing on your hands, right? You're using your back muscles and your triceps. And so not your shoulders either. And you inhale from the belly up to the chest and you use those back muscles to lift yourself up and you go back down. You do 10 of those and you will be sore under your shoulder blades the next day. Guaranteed. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to cover that I haven't touched on or sort of segue to or like, what can I also bring into this for you? Well, gosh, um, we covered a lot. It was such a fun conversation. And I'll say this, if you've never touched a yoga mat, but you want to move forward or you have touched a yoga mat and you even want to come to our instructor school, whether you want to teach it or just have a real intense, immersive week, we have instructor schools about four this year. We have about three or four every year. So come to our website, go to instructor school and see when the next one is. But it's a transformative experience and you'll leave different and you will have a skill set that you can either teach or practice yourself. But I'd love to have you. So, and if there's anything that I didn't cover that someone wants to know, info at yogaforfirstresponders.org, all spelled out and we'll get right back to you. Amazing. I'm glad we finally were able to connect and that we soldiered through the tech issues initially there and uh, <laughs> it all smoothed out for us, right? Perseverance. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a great conversation. I really had a good time talking to you, Scott. Awesome. I'm sure we'll talk again. Yes. Thanks so much.